Today's episode of The Story Men is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash thestorymen. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Stay tuned later in the show for JR's audiobook recommendation. All right. Can anybody do a good Matt Michelotto's impression? And I am Matt Michelotto's. And then you just say something rude about history and go, (laughs) Uh, Clay, is that the time that Abraham Lincoln and George Washington uh, went on a camping trip together and discovered uh, the whole uh, Mississippi River Valley with Sacagawea? Is that when that was? That's awesome. Here's that my did, you, did you think I was Matt for a minute? Yeah. Here's, here's my other impersonation of Matt. Oh, and man. I am Matt Michelotis. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Are we ready to start? Yep. All right. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Story Men Podcast, episode 141. I am Clay Morgan. I'm JR Foresteros. And Matt Michelotis will be along shortly. We are the Story Men. We also blog over at NorvalRogers.com. Today, we are joined by friend, author, fantastic human, Tom the Tom first. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> I can't believe it's the first time we've ever had Tom on the Storyman. Yeah, how is that possible? I didn't even think that was a true story. Yeah, but it is. So Tom and I do the Bible Bites podcast together. So Tom and I have been podcasting together for at least thirty-six months. episodes. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. is I've heard time. Tom podcast so much, I just assumed that it was live with me. Yeah, but it just—it's not. And so, Tom, I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Also, Tom's super busy. You know, it's hard for him to make time for for shows like ours. <laughs> that that must be it. That must be it. You know, uh, Tom is my one of my oldest and dearest friends, and um, so I know that he's a geek. But Tom, one of our traditions we have with guests on the show is that we ask them to display their geek credentials. So, would you mind sharing with our listening audience what makes you a geek? Yeah. So I thought about. Uh, a couple of different options. I thought maybe I could go with Harry Potter, but I feel like everybody's a Harry Potter geek anymore. Um, I thought about Bible commentaries, but I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm a pastor, so I feel like that's kind of a given. So I think I'm going to go with option number three. I'm pretty geeky about Coke Zero. Uh, nice. Yeah. I, I can attest to that. I've witnessed it, this. In it is almost the in uh it is almost the fullness of coke classic without the metal taste of diet coke oh wow yeah hmm. i still am a dr pepper person myself but i do I-, I can respect someone that likes a good coke zero well to be honest it started off with mountain dew and then i realized that was going nowhere good once i hit about 32 <laughs> It was dissolving your insides. <laughs> yeah, not so much as much as expanding my insides. And every <laughs> time I walked up, every time I walked upstairs, I was out of breath. So, 
I, so that was it, huh? Yep, yep. I had to drink a Mountain Dew before I even took the first step to give me the energy to get up the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, um, we're, uh, you, so you just put out a book that yep. is, it's interesting, it's, it's technically an Advent book, but it came out in like September. <laughs> yeah, well, they wanted to get ahead on, on selling it before <laughs> Advent. I, I, ass- so, I, ass- I assume they know more about marketing than I do. <laughs> Judging from that book cover, I would not swear that that's true. <laughs> as, a, as a former author with the house, I, I'm going to defer. <laughs> uh, what did you say on Facebook? You love your ugly baby? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's like, uh, you know, you, you have those friends who just have ugly babies, and you know that they got to be holding this kid thinking <laughs> – dang, this kid is ugly, but I love him anyway, you know? And like, so this is my ugly baby. I, l- I love it. It's mine. It, 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 on the inside looks like me, but on the outside, I'm like, where did this, where did this beast come from? <laughs> it, we sh- if you have not seen the cover of Tom's book, we'll put a link in the show notes at storyman.us where you can go see it or you can look it up on Amazon. But it basically looks like it was a really hot seller in the Christian bookstores in about 1992. <laughs> Uh, I, my friend, uh, Dallas actually today sent me a link to Inglewood. Uh, what is it? The Inglewood Christian books. Uh, they, they do that yearly campaign to find the worst Christian book covers. Uh-huh. And yeah. And so he asked me today if, uh, if it was okay, if I submitted, if he submitted my book. Why not? That's, that's no press is bad. Press, yeah. Right? Yeah. I can get a $25 Amazon gift card out of that crap. Hey, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So the book is called Underdogs and Outsiders, and we we said it's kind of an Advent book. But like, how how did the idea for this book come about? Yeah, well, they they actually approached me. So I, I had been uh, Ministry Matters had been stealing my blogs for a long time. So whenever I would blog something, they asked if they could you know just uh, take them and post them on their page. And so I really been writing for them for two years. Uh, and then I guess the, um, the guy who runs the ministry matters webpage contacted the, uh, curriculum development department and said, Hey, uh, I got this guy who might be a great author of a book if you're looking for somebody. So they just reached out and said, Hey, do you want to write an advent book for us? Uh, so it already had, you know, just, uh, some qualities that they wanted, you know, they told me how many chapters and how many words they wanted and that, you know, how they wanted it formatted. And that they wanted it to be for Advent, but they basically said, as long as I stick within you know certain structures, I can write about whatever I wanted. Um, so, so you basically had write us an Advent book, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I knew immediately what I wanted to write about. I knew I wanted to write about the family tree of Jesus, and in particular the women in the family tree. Uh, there's so much scandal and so much excitement and so much just. Um, uh, just the, the, the stories are so sketchy <laughs> um, that I thought, man, like th- these are the kinds of passages that people generally avoid. And I just really like unpacking those kinds of stories because I, th- I think those are really human stories. Tom was, yeah. a working, was one of the working titles adventures in Advent. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I don't think I decided on this title. Um, but no, that was not one of the titles. I think, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what I would have otherwise come up with, but I don't think it would have been that. <laughs> so, so just to be clear, Ad, uh, Abingdon said, we want you to write an Advent book. You write about whatever you want. And you were like, cool, I'm going to do the genealogy. Yeah. 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 
Like Look. the one part of the Christmas story that literally everyone skips. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And 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 maybe precisely because people skip it, right? Like, I mean, this is this is a piece of our Christian heritage that uh, either out of boredom or because it freaks us out or we don't understand it, we often just want to ignore. And so what could be more fun than sitting down with a text like that and showing that it really is beautiful and alive and, and exciting? I remember when I was in Genesis years ago and I had skipped over the genealogies back there forever. Mm. And some for some reason, I got to like Noah's dad um, who lived to be whatever, 777 and Methuselah was in the mix. And, and I, I suck at math, but the numbers started to jump out. And I realized that the timeline had Methuselah, basically his 969th year would have ended or at the flood time. And it just started like thinking that the numbers had timing and meaning. And, and there were little indicators in there about like what they did for a living. And it got, to, it got really interesting to me for for a bit and i had never noticed it so i jumped to matthew and i wanted to have like some more cool revelations yeah and i didn't (laughs) (laughs) but um it certainly matters right and and yes i i i'm like mr history history is powerful and important and significant um so so when you talk to people and you 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 try to get them hooked you start beyond it's important and it's beautiful. Yeah. So I, I, I think you start by saying, okay, the reason we skip over this is because when we look at it, uh, you know, when we look at the whole chapter and we just see a list of names uh, that, that we're really missing the detail and the beauty is in the detail of it. And so the beauty is actually in slowing down and asking ourselves, Hey, what is here? What, what is actually happening? And so, you know, Matthew actually tells us a little bit of this in his gospel um, so a couple of things. One, uh, Matthew tells us that he divides his, his uh, genealogy into four groups of 14, which is really strange, particularly when you start doing the math and you realize that Matthew apparently doesn't know how to add um, because his first group is 13, his second group is 14, and his third group is 13 as well. Um, and so, you know, you say, okay, I, either Matthew doesn't know how to add or he's doing something strange here. Another interesting component is Matthew actually includes uh, historical events, like he, he includes the exile to Babylon. And so you say, well, why would you include a historical event in the middle of a list of names? And then ask the question, which is what I'm really interested in, uh, in genealogies uh, in the ancient world, they're completely patriarchal, that men dominate those things. So why in the world would Matthew include five uh, women, or in particular, four women, if you don't count Mary, um, why would he include these women in the genealogy in the genealogy of Jesus when that is so rare? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, of course, that's the kind of question that gets biblical, you know, get biblical scholars all up in the air and fighting with one another and, um, you know, bleeding all over each other's essays. But like, it, it really is a fun question that I think, and I argue in the book, like has a direct bearing on our faith and, and how we see what Jesus came to do. Okay. Well, so one, I've liked, well, I focused on the gospel of Luke in recent years as my favorite, um, a lot more so than I had in the past. And one of the reasons was because he told stories that no one else had. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff about women was in there. Mm -hmm. But as you bring up this genealogy of Matthew, 
I, I guess you're right. That's probably another place where women are more prominent. So, so what are those reasons that you just alluded to? <laughs> uh, so oddly enough, I'm actually in a class right now uh, here at the University of Memphis where the professor has done some writing on the genealogy of Jesus, though so he has no idea that I've also done some writing on it. Uh, and so he's, he's actually arguing that uh, the women in the genealogy of Jesus appear there because Matthew is trying to prepare the reader for the scandalous pregnancy of Mary. And so he looks back and he says, hey, like, look at each of these women there. They're, you know, have these scandalous sexual encounters. And so, um, you know, so Tamar becomes a prostitute and seduces her father-in-law and uh, Rahab's a prostitute and Ruth uh, seduces uh, Boaz in euphemistic ways that are pretty subtle in the English. Uh, and then, of course, you have the Bathsheba narrative. Wait, what was Ruth's seduction tactic? Just being poor? <laughs> right. Uh, she, yeah, so uh, do, is that a genuine question, or are you asking me? She seduced him? Yeah, so in the, in the Hebrew, uh, Naomi tells her to go uncover Boaz's feet. And feet, feet are a euphemism uh, for genitals. What? Yes. And in fact, uh, it also has to do with like, uh, she says, hey, like put your cover over me. And all of this is like subtle sexual reference. She is, she is making sexual advances toward him. Man, you Nazarenes are always trying to find sexual innuendo in the previously tame hey. biblical passages. Hey, I'm, me- I'm Methodist, okay? I'm Methodist. <laughs> That's right. So yeah, we don't. Okay, you Wesleyans, you Wesleyans. Yeah, we don't. We don't like sex in the Methodist Church. <laughs> That's why we're in decline. We're baptizing babies, and we still can't make enough of them to keep up. <laughs> uh, but but so no, many jokes. But no, like I mean, you know. So and then, so the question though is really so. You know, a lot of scholars for a long time have argued that the reason these women are in the genealogy of Jesus is because they're. They're sexually scandalous, but to me that's, you know, and you guys can push back here, but to me that actually works against Matthew's argument. Matthew's argument is precisely that Mary is not sexually scandalous. That, that right, she, she's a virgin. Right. So what good would it do his argument to use four women that are sexually scandalous? So what I would argue instead is that the reason these women are included is because they have, they're foreigners, they're Gentiles, and, or in particular that they're marginalized, which at least on the marginalization front, Mary would um, you know, have some parallel with them. But Tamar is a Canaanite. The text doesn't tell us that, but uh, Judah is actually in Canaan whenever he marries off his sons. Uh, R- Ruth is overtly, explicitly a Moabite. Rahab is overtly, explicitly a Canaanite. Uh, and Bathsheba in Matthew's genealogy is not given a name. She's called the wife of Uriah, uh, which is actually following the Septuagint, which is a longer story. But the point is the wife of Uriah, Uriah the Hittite. Um, and so I would actually submit to you that this is a larger part of Matthew's development of the idea that Jesus' kingdom includes foreigners. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, so you can actually see, like, when you when you start engaging a text like this, it, it is really exciting because it, it all of a sudden has implications. Even if you take the sexual route, like, who are the kinds of people that would be in the in in the family tree of Jesus? Well, if if these people are in the family tree of Jesus, then these people can these kinds of people uh, in our lives can also find redemption. They can also, you know, have their stories swept up into the life of Jesus. 
or if they're Gentiles, if the emphasis of Matthew is on being foreigners, then it is saying that Jesus is uh, a person who whose kingdom is open to people of all nations and ethnicities and places in life. Like, so the genealogy is not just like this list of name names, recounting rote facts. The genealogy is a theological document. It is a religious document that is designed to teach us about the character of Jesus and his kingdom. You know, Tom, in the, in the book, one of the, one of the, in, in the introduction, we are explaining why a genealogy, one of the analogies that you used, I found really powerful was you said, you know, in a world where they didn't have family photo albums, like this is how kids learned who their family was, is they would, they would sit down and hear the patriarch tell the list of the names of the family. And there would be stories attached to all of these names. And you, you know, you've already mentioned kind of alluded to this with, with the way Matthew's constructing this, but not every single family member automatically got on the list. Right, right. If, if you go to if you go to Matthew's genealogy and you're looking for a historical recounting of the family tree of Jesus, you're going to be sorely disappointed, because again, it, it, that in itself tells us that that's not what Matthew's trying to do. He's not trying to convey literally who had who and you know who was born of whom. Like I think it's probably actually um, uh, chronologically impossible for Rahab to be the um, mother of Boaz, for example. Like, I, I don't think the lines in the Old Testament, the years in the Old Testament line up for that. That said, that's not what Matthew's trying to do. What Matthew's trying to do is show us the kinds of people who are included in the family tree of Jesus. And once we see that this includes very scandalous people, then we know that the kind of kingdom that Jesus is opening up is a kingdom that is open to scandalous people where their stories and their brokenness and their imperfections can find redemption. Um, yeah. So the other thing I thought was really interesting, and I, I don't think it's just because again, we were friends, but you, like you share some pretty personal stories from your own family as you're reflecting on the family of Jesus. And I thought it was interesting how you made, basically you, you made the connection. You said, well, yeah, like broken families have a place in the family of Christ. Like in this genealogy proves that like, what was that like for you writing about your family and sharing some of those stories? like in a book you knew was just going to go out to the whole world. Yeah. Um, you know, it is my assumption that, uh, whether it's in writing or whether it's in preaching, um, what people need from us more than anything else is for us to be vulnerable. Hmm. And, um, they need to know that, uh, the person they're reading or the person they're listening to has wrestled with these texts that these matter, that, that, that they, they need to know that I feel something about this, that I have something at stake in this. And so, you know, there's a sense in which, yeah, you can share too much. There are things about my growing up family life that nobody needs to know about. You know, I don't need to share that with everybody. But insofar as it is safe, uh, I need to be as vulnerable as, I, as possible um, because it is only in recognizing the truth of my own family tree's brokenness that I am then able to come before Christ as a broken person and say, Hey, I see that in these stories, you redeemed other broken stories, other broken lives. I believe that you can do that for me. And so to me, it's, 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 it's not only just an intuitive thing to do, but I think it's the task of being a Christian writer uh, and a Christian speaker. Um, yeah. One of the um, questions that I've found interesting when I didn't even realize this until a couple years ago, Tom, 
about Jesus and women mm. was um, just just the idea that he had little sisters. Mm. And I don't know why everybody knows about his brothers. And obviously in the culture, that's who had the more prominent positions and whatnot. But in the context of a conversation about Advent and these genealogies, um, would you go into anything in the book about Jesus's family as far as Mary and Joseph's other, other kids and that, that impact? Uh, you know, the, the book doesn't actually uh, include any, any discussion of, of even Jesus brothers really. Um, though, uh, yeah, that would, that would, that would be a super interesting study to, to do something about, Hey, like what does Jesus immediate family look like? That's good. He's the, he's the first kid, you know, if we think in terms of 21st century lingo, Mm. um, I don't know for, for for all of what's that, Jared? The firstborn. Yeah. Like for the idea of all of the mystical power and religious significance and everything, this was a young couple that was having a kid and I'm always interested in the family dynamics of it. So I guess obviously Advent is a, is a little separate from what, what they would become as a family. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but women are just so much more prominent in the story all throughout. I like that you've brought out so much more about that here. Yeah. I, I really think uh, women in the story of Jesus is, I mean, it's just worth anybody's time diving into I mean, he, he is just, Jesus is so like scandalous, scandalously uh, subversive of normal patriarchal norms, uh, norms of male dominance, norms of how men relate to women. Um, it's, it's, in fact, he does it so often that uh, in John chapter eight, we have a, a whole text of scripture that describes Jesus' interactions with a woman uh, who is about to be stoned that probably aren't actually originally biblical. Uh, like this is a text that's added later, but the reason it could fit so well there is precisely because everybody already recognized that Jesus has this, um, you know, just sort of um, affinity for women in a, in a, in a healthy way, of course. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wanted to uh, just by, I mean, we've been talking in, in kind of broad strokes about the book, but I wanted to, to, as, as before we, we wind down zero in on one of the five women and we'll just start with the, the first one, uh, Tamar. So she's in Genesis uh, 38. Is that right? Yep. Okay. Um, give us, give us her story. Cause it, it's, it's like an interruption in the Joseph story, right? Yeah. Right. So, uh, Joseph's story begins and his brothers sell him into slavery. They go back and tell their dad that it looks like, Hey, it looks like your son has been attacked by wild animals. And the story leaves off with Jacob, uh, mourning and he's weeping. And so you would think that the next thing would be, would be that we would pick up on that story either with Joseph or with, with Jacob. But it turns out you get this one chapter detour, uh, this one chapter digression away from that. And we get the story of this woman, uh, Tamar. Now, uh, Judah, who is Jacob's oldest son, uh, has left the, uh, family clan and he's gone off into Canaan and he marries his sons off to Canaanite women, uh, particularly his oldest son, Ur, marries Tamar in the land of Canaan. Now, the problem is uh, Ur is wicked. And so before he and Tamar can have a child, uh, God kills Ur. He's actually the first individual that God kills in the Bible. 
not God killed masses of people, obviously, in the flood story, but he's the first individual, and we don't know what his wickedness is. God just killed him. Uh, and then Tamar, without any explanation from the author, this is just like background information that we would need to understand this, but uh, the author tells us then that Tamar marries Ur's younger brother, Onan. And Onan, as he is having sex with her, he uh, decides not to finish uh, and thereby run the risk of impregnating her. And so he pulls himself out, spills the seed on the ground, and God is angry about it and kills him. And so it, it's almost like Judah at this point then says, hmm, maybe the problem is it with my sons. Maybe the problem is with Tamar, this Canaanite woman. And so he says, why don't you go back to your father? And uh, I'll send for you when my youngest son comes of age. But, of course, he has no intention of giving her uh, his youngest son. And so here Tamar is waiting all this time. She realizes that he's not going to send his son, his youngest son to her or not going to allow her to marry him. And so she dresses up like a prostitute and waits on the side of the road. Um, and Judah's, uh, during all this time, uh, Judah's wife dies. And so he has needs that are not being met. Um and uh, and so she says, hey, I'll meet those needs in this interesting way. So she dresses up like a prostitute, waits on the side of the road. Judah approaches her. He says, hey, I don't have any cash. And she's like, that's cool. Give me your staff and your cloak. Uh, and so like the staff would have been like really like marked with these distinctive markers so that everybody would have known who it was. And so she's like, you know, like you can just make this down payment when you come back and give me the money. Like I'll give you the staff back. So he's like, okay. So he gives her the staff and the and, and the and the and the garment, and she sleeps with him, and then he's like on his way, and he even sends a message. Like he's he's, uh, d despite how really like uh, incredibly, I don't know, um, terrible a human being Judah is, he at least uh, has enough uh, morality to say he sends the servant to pay her, but the servant can't find her, and so he the servant comes back and says, hey, I can't find her. And then Judah gets this news that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. Uh, and so he drags her to him and he is ready to kill her. And then she says, boom, the man who gave, who put this baby inside of me, he, uh, he's the one who owns this staff. And everybody's like, because <gasps> <laughs> it's um, clearly his, right? Like, right yeah, that's yeah. literally what she said. That's right. She said, boom, here you go. Owned. <laughs> Um, yeah. And so, and, and so, so what's really interesting is his immediate response is she is more righteous than I am. Um, and so like, which is a really strange comment to make for somebody who just dressed like a prostitute and seduced you, right? Like that's um, the part, part I find interesting is, yeah, you, you're even in your book, you're arguing she's righteous. Yeah. Yeah, she is absolutely righteous. And here's the point. Okay, so in order to understand like all that is happening here, understand something about leveret marriage, the the old test the Old Testament custom of leveret marriage. A woman's place in society was completely determined by the men in her life. So originally her father, then she gets married, it's determined by her husband, and then the the proper thing for a woman to do is have the wherewithal to produce a male child who will then take care of her in her old age. Everything is owned by the men. Everything is controlled by the men. So a woman who does not have a husband or a firstborn child is a woman who is in a completely destitute situation. So understand then what the ancient Hebrews did was they said, okay, if you're married to a man and he dies, uh, the woman is basically considered property. So she's going to go to the next brother. Okay. 
And so it was logical for the Hebrew, for in Judah's clan, for her to be passed on to Onan. And it was logical then for Onan, after he died, for her to be passed down to Shelah, who is the, the next brother. Uh, but understand that Judah's decision not to give the final brother to, uh, to, to Tamar is not just an act of, um, you know, stinginess or something in, in terms of, oh, I want my son to marry someone else. It's actually an act of injustice. By not giving the final brother to her to marry her, he essentially locks her into a future where she does not have a male heir to take care of her in her, in her old age. She doesn't have any health insurance. She doesn't have any income. She doesn't have a retirement plan. All of this is gone. Um, and so Judah's act is a, an act of in, egregious injustice. And so when we look at the Tamar story and her dressing like a prostitute, what she's essentially doing is she has no other option. She is an acting the only option that she has. She is trying to find a way out of this situation. And I think when at the end of the story, Judah says she is more righteous than I am. Uh, he's not saying, hey, it's good for people to dress like prostitutes. He's saying, listen, she was in a place in a place of where she had been put in destitution because of injustice. And I participated in that. And therefore, even though she dressed like a prostitute, seduced me and got him got impregnated by me. She is still more right than I am. Okay, time out. Yeah. The average churchgoer in your Methodist church, do they agree with that interpretation? Oh, I don't care, because if they don't, they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm joking, but I'm not, because cult, I mean, way beyond Methodist culture, you know, that's a shocking thing to say. Oh, it's sure. She's actually righteous. But yeah. it's, I mean, but it's first what of Jude, all, it's we what Judah says. Like yeah. Judas, Judas is the one that says it in the scripture itself. She's more righteous than I am. Yeah, but but it is. But I think the point you're bringing up, Clay, is, is a good one, right? Like we are so far removed from that culture, and we are so influenced by Freud to think in terms of like everything being sexually perverted that we can't possibly fathom that structural systemic injustice is more egregious. Mm -hmm. uh, egregiously wicked to God than someone's individual sexual um, behavior. Yeah, we're so scandalized by these moments that we completely miss the point of the larger injustice. Yeah, and, it, and it, I think it also uh, raises some of the questions like, you know, whenever you're in college ethics or whatever, and they say, hey, you know, is it wrong to lie? And you say, yeah, and then you say, well, if you could lie to save the lives of some Jews, would you do it, you know, in, in World War II? And you're like, oh, I, you know, I don't know. But the answer to that question is, yeah, like <laughs> you do. Obviously. You know, and, and it's, you know, because saving a life is better. In this case, her only way of having a future and having a life is to dress like a prostitute. And to seduce her father-in-law. She uses the only tools available to her. And out of this comes the Messiah. I mean, this is this is the thing. This, I mean, think long-term about this story. It is through her scandalous actions, uh, or really righteous prostitution, that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, comes about. Um, there's a huge redemptive arc to this story. That's amazing. Yeah. So, and that's just one chapter. <laughs> that's just one chapter. Yeah. That's not even, uh, that, that's not even probably the most scandalous thing I say in the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You did, that's just like your warm up chapter. Yeah. yeah. 
so uh, we we do want to do a giveaway for the book, but before before we we wrap up, we do have a, a sacred storyman tradition that we have to honor, don't we, Clay? A sacred storyman, Papow. <laughs> Pow pow! Yes, it's our pop culture pick of the week, where we pick one thing from pop culture that we mm-hmm. have been into. It can be new, it can be old, and uh, and go with it. I'm going to go ahead and go first. Uh, I just met up today, the day that we're recording. I met up with friend of the show Blake Atwood, and he came from a signing where Brian Cranston spoke about his new book, A Life in Parts. If you're not aware of oh. who Brian Cranston is, he was the star of the box office bomb Godzilla. Um, but you're probably more familiar with him. <laughs> a terrible way to introduce Brian Cranston. <laughs> I know, but I figured I'd go with what no one knew. Uh, he is most famously Walter White from the show Breaking Bad. And he's just put out a memoir. It's called A Life in Parts. I have not gotten to read it yet. Uh, Blake was just raving about it. And um, he said that it's really a, it's really about how playing so many different people has shaped him throughout his career as an actor. Uh, yeah, I do. Remember, by the way, he was the dentist in Seinfeld. He was Ted's boss in How I Met Your Mother. He just played LBJ in another movie. He was in Godzilla. Yeah. <laughs> um, but again, uh, so uh, many of you know that the uh, Storyman podcast is now brought to you by Audible.com, where you can get a free audiobook download and a 30 day free trial at Audible. Uh, www.audibletrial.com slash the story man. They have over 180,000 titles to choose from, from your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And for those of you who are listening today, uh, you audible is offering a free audio download with a 30 day free trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. And a life in parts is one of those. And it is read by Brian Cranston, the author. Nice. So, if you haven't tried Audible yet, if you've been thinking about it, and if you're a fan of right now, I will say that Blake, who wrote The Gospel According to Breaking Bad, so he literally wrote a book about Breaking Bad and loves the show, he said that he doesn't talk a ton about Breaking Bad in the book, but what he says is pretty great, and th- he loved the whole book. He just went on and on about how much he loved it. So um, take it from a guy who reads a lot of books. Uh, he said it was great. So if you're interested in getting an audio version of that, uh, to download your free audio book today, go to audibletrial.com slash thestoryman. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash thestoryman for your free audio book. That's my pop culture pick of the week. Clay, what is yours? Yeah, I'll definitely be picking that one up. Um, Okay, so mine, in honor of a movie I've been so excited about that now is delayed until January, I am going to go with Underworld. Yes, the vampire like and love story with Kate Beckinsale and Scott Speedman and others. Um, It has been delayed. It's not going to release this weekend as it was supposed to. It's going to come out in January. I'm sure they just want to, you know, get in the Oscar buzz. Um, Make sure it's probably just as as good as it could possibly be. I mean, it was already going to be probably flawless. I I think every commentator agrees that there was not going to be any problems with this movie. And uh, um, that's why they've already announced, by the way. With Twilight, did they do a crossover with Twilight? Because that would just (laughs) make it amazing. Yeah, if they killed everybody in Twilight. Sweet. I I mean, that's that's worth it. Well, there is already a sixth film in development, as well as a TV series. This this franchise oh is about to go bigger than ever, and we're going to get all we can handle of Celine. So, um, but yeah, 
the, the original Underworld, it's, it's that time of year when we like to watch, you know, these kind of monster movies and things like that. So it's, the first one's pretty good. Uh, it gets a little choppy. I actually really liked Underworld Awakening, which came out five years ago already, when she came back to the franchise. Man, it's hard to believe it's been five years since I never saw that movie. <laughs> you didn't see the fourth Underworld movie? I, I'm certain I saw the first one. Wait, you see every movie. Why wouldn't you see all the monster movies? I mean, I don't really count Underworld as monster movies. Kind of Surely. like I don't count Twilight as a monster movie. What that's, it's Underworld and Twilight are nothing like. Nothing alike. They're definitely not werewolves versus vampires with love story in the middle. Totally different. <laughs> first of all, Underworld came first. And Stephanie Meyer doesn't know anything about vampires. I heard uh, Stephanie Meyer directed the latest Underworld film. I heard your book is dumb. <laughs> My book has vampires and werewolves in it, too. So it's a monster book. <laughs> yeah, did you not see the cover? <laughs> the only monsters here are you, gentlemen. <laughs> Kate, if you're listening, we're big fans. Love to have you on the show. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's a woman holding a cross on the on the cover of my book. Warding on the vampire. It could be a lot of things. By the way, the marketing campaign of all the famous people who are holding your book is also fun. Is there anywhere people can find that? Is it just uh, been posted randomly? It's been posted randomly just on Facebook. Yeah. Okay. But, but uh yeah, if they want a Facebook friendly, that'll work. <laughs> all right, we'll get your social media in a second. That, you're trying to hit that five K cap, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So what so, is Tom, your, what is your pick, pick of the week? Pick this one. Uh, I'm going to go with timeless. I'm going to go with NBC. Oh, nice. timeless. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, man, I have just, I, I don't, I, I have a deep fear that they're not going to be able to keep this up. Um, that the story is going to be become too complicated and that it's going to run into contradictions. Uh, and I'm already maybe seeing a little bit of that happen, or at least I have enough questions that aren't answered. Um, that that don't seem like they logically fit, but uh, man, it, right now it's a fantastic show, and there's a little bit of social commentary happening on race in the show. So mm-hmm. um, just I, I love it when you can get some science fiction, some action, some social commentary together. Check out Timeless. Excellent. Uh, so that's Comspick Week. Com, uh, before you go, tell us how people can connect with you online. Yeah, so uh, I have not blogged in a while, but if you want to check out something that I've written before, you can look at TomFirst, T-O-M-1-S-T.com. You can also connect with me at at T-H-O-M-1-S-T on Twitter, and then you can look up TomFirst, that's T-O-M-F-U-E-R-S-T on Facebook, and uh, I'd love to connect with you there as well. Excellent. We will uh, do a giveaway for this book. If you've never done a giveaway here on the Storyman, here's how it works. You either go to storyman.us and go to the show notes for this episode or facebook.com slash the Storyman and click on the giveaway tab. And there's lots of ways you can enter. You can visit Tom's Facebook profile, follow him on Twitter, visit his blog, uh, like the Storyman's page, give us an iTunes review or answer this question. Uh, And all of those are different ways you can enter for a chance to win a copy of Underdogs and Outsiders by Tom. And again, it is technically an Advent book, but you do not have to wait until the end of next month to start reading it. It is a book that you will enjoy any time of the year. So uh, if you are interested, the question that we have for you is what is the most surprising or scandalous story in the Bible that you're aware of? Uh, And maybe if you are feeling especially creative, what have you learned from that story? Uh, So you can answer that at storyman.us in the show notes um, for this episode. 
uh, Tom, I just want to say it's been awesome to have you on. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys. Maybe you'll have me go on again in the future sometime, you know, when you're not too busy with other guests. Well, <laughs> we we borderline can't all three of us show up most of the time. So, hey, I'll be a fill in for Matt. Yeah, you could just you could just host basically whenever you want. I'll, I'll listen to some Perfect. prior episodes and I'll see if I can't do some uh, just uh, do a Matt impression. It's it's good to be back, by the way, Jr. I've missed I missed out on a couple episodes. You have missed a couple, yeah. And to all of you listeners who uh, were suckered in by a promise that Matt would show up by the end of the episode and have been listening all the way till the end, sorry. April Fools. I'm just going to assume Matt hates me. <laughs> You're not alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there I are mean, but, friends of Clay's that are pretty sure Matt doesn't exist. <laughs> that's the title of Matt's next book, Matt Hates Everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but then yeah. again, I mean, with our sweet impersonations, people probably thought he was actually here. <laughs> yeah, I probably don't even miss him. So this has been Story Man episode 141. The book is called Underdogs and Outsiders. It is by our good friend Tom First, who will be back soon. Tom, thanks again. And everyone, yes. thank you for listening as always. Until next time, be well. Grace and peace be with you. there's a man rather sometimes there's some men and I'm talking about the story men here and I know what you're thinking those are some tall fellers I don't know if that's three stories separately or three combined but we're missing the point sometimes there's some men and you want to know what these hombres are about well I won't say they're heroes they're just the men who are right for their time and place these men, uh, shoot, I lost my place. Well, I've probably introduced them enough, so just relax for a spell and bend your ear their way. <laughs>